So I make really bad science puns, but only periodically. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teach This Teacher Podcast. I'm Wesley Glosson, and today our show is going to be about special education during COVID. I'm excited. Later on, we're going to have a guest, Christina Calderon, and she is a special education teacher in the state of Illinois. Let's get started. So I have to say that I have not paid close enough attention to one very important aspect of education during the time of COVID, and that being special education. So we all know it was plenty hard enough for us to educate our students with rigor through virtual learning that were our regular ed kids or um, those kids that were on level without IEPs. Well, we all know that there are a very special group of students that we have the responsibility to educate. And those are our kids that do have IEPs or they don't have IEPs, but they still have accommodations. And so it was, of course, very, very difficult to educate them during the time of COVID. So we are going to interview Christina later to see how her school did it. And um, we also have a poll going on Twitter asking just how do you think your school did overall in accommodating their needs? So I found a story from NPR. And this story is all about parents and what they feel that their schools, the areas that they succeeded and failed in, in providing their children with a quality education during lockdowns virtual. And there is a audio version on NPR, and we'll put the link in the show notes. And there's a slightly different written article, but the audio article starts off with just clips of parents talking about just absolutely how horrible it was. They were talking about their children were crawling under desk, putting them, the parents, in headlocks. They couldn't get the teachers to focus on their student. And uh, they were just horrified. What I took away from it is, welcome to our world. (laughs) I mean, even if these students were in-person learning, doesn't mean they wouldn't have been under their desk. I had multiple children that would just go under their desk or jump up and walk to the back of the room or go under my desk. And so what struck me is that these parents were horrified. And it's like, this is the thing that teachers have to deal with every single day. But instead of just your child, we have a classroom full of other students that have the right to learn as well. And so I'm not blaming the parents. I'm not blaming the student. But I am glad in one aspect that parents got a little taste of what teachers do. And so hopefully we won't be hearing any more complaints from parents about Teachers are the only ones that get eight weeks off in the summer. That's because of what all we have to deal with (laughs) during the school year. One of the really interesting things that have come out of this is some parents and lawyers are starting to demand compensatory awards, basically saying that they need to be compensated for the quality education that their sped children, the, the children with disabilities or an IEP lost. This is very controversial in my mind. On one hand, I can understand how they would come up with that conclusion. 
But on the other hand, we all lost things during the pandemic, regular ed and special ed. So how do you go about determining who gets what? You know, my 11-year-old, I don't feel like he lost a whole lot because he has two educators right here in his home and we were staying on top of him and we were also working from home. And uh, he he might have even got more in some areas. <laughs> and he, I feel like he got a pretty quality education, but he missed some things. I, I can't pretend as if he got everything he would have gotten. So if we're going to start trying to go back and determine who lost what and then compensate them for that, those compensatory awards, where does it stop? And not only that, but where does it stop outside of COVID? I mean, it's very easy to prove that students in poor neighborhoods aren't getting the education that they deserve. So shouldn't they be awarded a compensatory statute as well. So it's just uh, interesting to me. Somebody in the article made the point that to do so would mean that school systems did something wrong. And of course, we know COVID was an act of God, you know, and a pandemic always is. And therefore, to try to suggest that schools, you know, did something wrong is really unfair to educators all over. So I'm not saying that there wasn't things that schools could have done better, but guess what? We didn't know those were things that we could have done better. (laughs) We're all in the same boat. And so I appreciate those parents that are understanding and I understand that it was hard, but I kind of feel like if all students lost out, then it's still equitable, right? In a bad way, in a negative way, but Nevertheless, it's not like only special education students lost out. We'll ask Christina about this and see what she thinks. On the other end, something that I will totally support parents is I'm glad they know their rights. I'm glad that they know that IEPs are law. They are legally binding documents. And so good on them. I don't know how this is going to fall with the Department of Education or in the courts if some of them are suing. But I think that it's good on them to know their rights and to try to get the best education for their child. Which brings me to my last point on this. Education of children, in my humble opinion, give me an amen in the comments if you agree, is always the responsibility of the parents first. Always. So if, God forbid, something else happens where schools have to shut down again, It's our responsibility. And I, even as an educator, noticed this to a greater degree during the pandemic. You know, if my son wasn't understanding fractions or decimals, it's my responsibility. If I can't teach it to him, I need to go online. And so here I am on Khan Academy teaching myself first (laughs) before I'm, you know, helping my son or find a tutor on. And I know that's easier said than done. Not everybody has that disposable income to be able to do that. However, that's one good thing about the pandemic is we call them in my family Biden bucks, like every family that isn't pretty well off, very well off is receiving a check in the mail. How many of those checks, you know, are going to the education of my child? There's so many websites that offer one-on-one tutoring or group tutoring. I have my four-year-old in a circle time online. So what I realized is that education is the parent's responsibility first, right? And so even when they're in school, it's my responsibility to make sure they're getting the education while they're there. You don't just drop them off at the door and say, bye, honey, 
and assume that they're getting the education they need. So anyways, I've gone a little long. We're going to get Christina on. That article, again, will be dropped in the show notes, and I'd love to hear what you guys think as well. Y'all remember to check out teachthisteacher.com. We are under renovation. We will be relaunching on January 4th with new classes to offer. And remember, these classes are taught by everyday teachers like yourself, and they are over topics that you always wished your school would provide professional learning over. They're low cost. They're right at home in the safety of your own home and the comfortability of your own couch. Come join us. Check out a professional learning course today at teachthisteacher.com. Hello, Christina. How are you today? I'm good. How about yourself? Good. Doing good. So we're down here near Atlanta, Georgia, and you're all the way up there in Illinois, but technology's great. And tell us a little bit about the school district you work for. I don't know how different Illinois and Georgia school districts are. So just tell us a little bit about how it works and how long you've been in education. Yeah. So I've been in education. This is actually my fourth year in my second district. I started my first year in a middle school placement. I started teaching in a deaf and hard of hearing classroom where I actually also was an itinerant. So I drove to the other buildings in the district for the lower levels. And then I moved to the district where I'm in now and I have my own classroom and I teach kindergarten through second grade. A lot better, I feel like, for my fit. But no, the district is great. It's a huge district, honestly. I think 80% low income, which is what I wanted to do. I really like that setting. I think it's a better fit for me. But yeah, we're growing. We've added on like a bunch of teachers. There's like five sections almost per each grade level. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. So just real quick, in Georgia, a lot of the teachers that have to serve as many different buildings, it's because we're in a rural setting. The more urban, suburban, they usually have what they need in their building. So is the setting that you're in, is it rural, suburban, urban? Because you had to service different buildings. So that just made me curious. I think we're more rural. This is always a hard topic for me because I actually came, I lived in Chicago before I moved to where I'm at. So to me, it's always been more rural. (laughs) Right. But Compared to Chicago, yeah. I know. <laughs> but no, I only service just the one building. And I think it's technically more a small town area. Right. But no, I only service the one building. Yeah. So that's always been... So I, when I was in the classroom, was in a very rural area, maybe 10,000 people in the whole county. So it was just interesting to see what we had to do with special ed services because, you know, you might have one kid in one building that needs this special service. And there's no way you can hire anyone, whether it's just a pair pro or a teacher just to service that. So if we had, for example, a deaf or hard of hearing in one building, and then we had a high school student also, it was just very tricky. So a lot of people or non-teachers don't understand how you really do have to meet every last one of their needs. And especially when you have limited resources. So that's why I was wondering um, how that worked for you guys. Well, let me ask you this. So you not only do ASL and deaf and hard of hearing, you service SPED students outside of those parameters. Is that correct? 
Yes. Yeah, so when I actually got the job that I'm in now, I went back to school and I got my LBS one certificate. So learning behavior specialist. So not only can I teach kids who are fully deaf or hard of hearing, but I can also teach kids who are on the autism spectrum. Okay. So when COVID hit, I finished out that year online and I know how hard it was to meet my students' needs. And it was a total mess. I'm just going to be honest. And that was gen ed. <laughs> my first question is, how in the world did you guys complete all of the mandatory meetings, the IEP meetings, the checkups, the check-ins? How did you guys do that? Or did you just put that on the shelf and hope and pray that later on there was no repercussions for it? Yeah, that definitely was really hard since, you know, being a special ed teacher, we're case managers for all these students' severe health concerns or severe educational needs. There was obviously like a point when everyone in the States had to stop everything for a second. But honestly, SPED teachers, we were on it for most of that time. We never honestly had that pause or that break because of the legality behind all those IEPs. Yeah. Zoom, Google Meets, what's easiest, who can get access to it. So yeah, our IEP meetings, we started on Zoom. The whole school started on Zoom and then we transitioned to Google Meets later on since we are a Google-based school. Mm -hmm. We tried to hit that from the ground running. What's really nice because we found that parents, a lot of parents were actually able to join more than they would have mm. before. Now they could just go on their phone or they could call in or they can go on their computer. Okay. So that's where my next question was going that teachers are fairly technologically literate most of the time. And so I didn't think it would be a hard problem for you all adjusting, but I was wondering about those parents. So that's interesting. We have a poll actually going on our company Twitter feed um, right now. And the question is just, how well do you think your school was trying to provide services for SPED during the school closings? And everyone that's in the three options are great attempts were made, meh, and absolutely awful. And everybody so far has said that they made great strivings to still meet those needs and to run those IEP meetings. So that, that's good to hear. That's really good to hear. So my next question is, I think, probably the trickier part of teaching virtually. So how did services change when you had to go virtual? So it's one thing to meet with parents in a Zoom meeting. That's pretty straightforward. But so some of the services that I saw teachers, SPED teachers that collabed with me, collaborated with me, they might have to transcribe for their student. They might, if it was multiple choice, they might take out two of the wrong answers or whatever. There's so many different ways that we aid our students that need help. You might have to read a passage to them while the rest of the class is reading it independently. So how did those services change? And you've kind of already answered this, but overall, what grade would you give what you saw, maybe not just yourself, but other SPED teachers, uh, what grade would you give the school's for providing those services during the lockdowns. Yeah. So I don't know how it is with Georgia and their special ed, but for Illinois, we were given, and maybe it's not just Illinois, it could be in my mind, but we had this paper, special education teachers got this paper, and basically we have to fill out if it was a normal class period, because you know people are in and out with remote and in person. If it was a normal time period, these are the minutes and the services we would provide, which were the normal ones in the IEP. And if we were remote, these are the minutes and the services we could provide. Because there's like you're saying, there's some times where I can't stop my student on the other side of the screen from being distracted. Mm -hmm. 
it's not possible for me. That's right. If they're not in my classroom. So things like that, I would have to take out certain things that it's impossible for me to do when they're at their house somewhere else with things going on in the background that are not in my power. Right. So throughout that year, when we were going back and forth, that was like our two. We're in person, so I could do this now. We're not, so this is what I can do. And all the services, speech pathology, everyone had to, all the general teachers, all the sped teachers, we all had to fill out what we were able to do for both settings. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I didn't even think of that. Like I said, I didn't go back into the classroom once the full year of lockdown came. I just had to finish out a couple months. And I didn't have any SPED students that year in my class. So I was not sure how that worked, but that makes a lot of sense. Did you feel a lot of frustration from those students that needed those services or did it work for them? It was a lot of frustration, especially because I teach kindergarten through second. So, you know, I have five-year-olds who are... <laughs> it's so hard to sustain the attention of a five-year-old in your classroom. Right. So how do you keep their attention when you don't... Yeah. You're not in the same room as them. You can't help or show them what they should be doing. You just have to hope that they stay with you for those 15 minutes because that's all we were able to do, you know, like 15-minute groups and go have a break, then come back and go. But it's what you have to do with kids who are so small and young. I can't imagine. I've always said that teachers are heroes, but anyone younger than second grade is like even more of a hero. And then <laughs> and then you add on to that special ed and special ed services online. It's just my hats go off to you. And earlier in the podcast, I delved into an NPR report that interviewed parents of SPED students. And a lot of the things that they were complaining about and super frustrated about are things that you guys have to put up with. We have to put up with every day. Anyways, they're like, my daughter was under the desk. And I'm like, she would be under the desk even at school. <laughs> so um, It's like, welcome to our world, multiply it by 25. <laughs> so tell me really quickly, did you see a lot of regression? What, now that you're back in school, did you see a lot of regression in things like staying in your seat, speaking in turn? So not just academically, but socially and um, SEL, social emotional. Did you see a lot of regression or? Yes, actually a huge amount. The whole district saw a bunch of regression behaviorally, socially, academically, all of it. Last year with us, they had the choice of being remote or in person. For the most part, okay, have the choice to go either, especially our SPED students who, especially if they had some health issues, they didn't have to come into the building given Mm -hmm. the pandemic happening. So, right, like you're saying, not even talking about academics, but the fact that they have to stay sitting on the carpet when we do a lesson, that's just not something in their head because, you know, they didn't have carpet time at home. Not, I mean, in not a bad way. Why would you, you know, it's not a school setting. Absolutely. Getting them to transition especially my students go between my classroom and the gen ed classroom throughout the day. Right. Getting them that transition is really big problem. But honestly, we've gotten there. It's mm-hmm. obviously more delayed than other years, but we've gotten there. That's right. That's right. And that positive attitude is where I hope we as a country remain. Another thing that I picked up on is that folks feel like the SPED students are the only ones that lost. And it's like, no, they're everyone lost. Gen Ed lost as well. So I, I just hope, like you're saying, keep that positive that we can catch up. 
the whole world, the whole world lost that year and a half. So it's not like just American students are, are a year and a half behind or whatever. So, all right, I'm going to move out of kind of COVID sped teaching and get into before COVID, after COVID, during COVID. What are the best and worst teachers to collaborate with? This is a very interesting question to me because when I was a gen ed teacher in the classroom, I would have sped teachers. I never knew. Some of them wanted to be like, I'm here to mostly service my students. I'll help you. I'll jump in. And then some of them wanted to be like equal 50-50. And it was really hard for me to know who wanted to do what and when. And sometimes I felt like I was talking over them and talking too much. And sometimes I was trying to give them too much. And they were like, this is your show, buddy. I'm in, only in here for 25 minutes. Um, and so what is the type of teacher that you love to collab with? And what's the type that you like dread? Oh, here's my 30 minutes in so-and-so's room. And I know you said this year you're in your own classroom, but I think you've been in the collab setting. Honestly, the district, I mean, I know a lot of people don't get this opportunity, but I get really spoiled in my district because we're really good about inclusion with SPED students. All the teachers are so used to having SPED students in their classroom. So we have the self-contained people like myself, mm -hmm. and we've got, let's see, three of those. Mm -hmm. We've got a life skills classroom, which is a lot lower functioning students who are learning life skills throughout the day. Sure. Then we've also got one special ed co-teacher in every single grade level that jumps between all of their classrooms to be in the room when SPED students are in. Right. So we've honestly got a really good team that makes right. it so that when you become a Jedi teacher in our district, you're so accustomed to almost teaching in a SPED way because you will always have SPED students. Okay. But it's like so crazy how our district, everyone's so used to, I mean, I, I go to Jedi teachers all the time for tips on how to teach my students or things I could do with my own kids because they already have that mentality of having taught there for so many years. They understand that I may have to lower it, but they're already teaching in a way that they're addressing every one of their genetic students' needs. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is, let's just say they don't have sped kids, but they're still differentiating instruction for the lower. And let's be honest, a lot of those lower in on the lower end, they benefit from different modifications or whatever. And so I guess that is true. When I think about it, I had some kids that were not IEP, but they were definitely, and there was actually some sped kids that were probably more capable to complete the work than some of the ones that weren't. And so you do, you do have, as a general ed teacher, have to be able to adapt and modify because like I said, they might not be labeled with that IEP or whatever, but they still need it. So in your school building, when the SPED teacher comes into the room, generally what you've seen, do they like to do like at the desk with each of their students? Or do they like to stand up in the front of the classroom with the teacher and lead the lesson? How does that work? For like the co-teacher for Gen Ed and SPED? Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They actually do it really well. They, I mean, everyone obviously does it different. There's definitely like the lecture type where they stand in front, but the Gen Ed and SPED teachers kind of sometimes will either switch or they designate, like you can teach like the reading yeah. and I'll do the math. Yeah. But no matter what, after the lecture, the SPED teacher in the classroom will pull his groups every single time, either to right. like the independent work or to give them a mini lesson before, just to recap everything. They're very good at making it 
a team effort instead of he's just for the sped students and she's just for the gen ed. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. My principal used to always say that you know a good collaboration when you can walk into the room and you can't tell who's the gen and who's the sped teacher. It's neat to hear you say that and we're so many miles away and that same mindset is there. Okay, so I'm going to wrap us up with the last question that something I'm super interested in because my daughter took ASL or she's taking ASL online and we started her when she was two or three years old. No, three years old and now she's four and a half and she picked up on it super quickly. We have no one in our family that's deaf or hard of hearing. We just thought it was something, another skill that she can learn, you know, as she's super young. I just heard somewhere statistics that your brain is develop 95% before you're five. So the more you teach them before they're five years old, don't quote me on that, um, the better. And so this is something that we saw and she picked up on it super, super well. So Christina, tell us how you came to learn American Sign Language and how have you used that in your teaching career? Yeah, so my mom worked in my grammar school. So she was in the building with me from when I was a preschooler all the way through eighth grade. And so I always just wanted to get into education. And my grandma, in my grandma's household, she kind of raised me a little bit when I was a kid, just like when my parents needed someone to watch me. And my aunt, who lives with my grandma, is actually completely profoundly Mm. deaf, does not hear anything. So she, her only mode of communication in life is to sign. And I didn't realize until I was older that this was anything not typical until I guess I brought it up and people pointed it out that like, wow, you know sign language or wow, you grew up with someone who's deaf. Like I've never experienced that. And in those classes, you have to be certified in sign language. So we have to be certified in every single type of sign language in order to graduate from that program. So we had hardcore sign language classes that we wouldn't speak in, but I didn't want to just teach kids who are deaf or hard of hearing. I also wanted to teach other kids the language or adults the language. So I started a club for students and then I got this lucky opportunity to teach it to adults and their family through an organization that's also near me. So I'm not only teaching at my school, I also teach adults from anywhere. They can join. I've got people from across state lines. I've got people from a few hours away from me all joining remotely because it's an online class. Okay. Yeah. So it's really exciting because... I never realized that that's something I would end up doing. I always thought that'd be really fun, but I'm finally getting the opportunity to teach adults and children sign language. That is awesome. I did not know that you're doing that. So we'll, we'll have to talk more about that. Um, we are in our family. My goal is for us to be multilingual because myself and my son, we study Spanish and then she's ASL. So I'm hoping it kind of all blends over. Our Spanish blends over with her. Her ASL blends over. Who knows? Maybe my other son will have in French. (laughs) So so we'll just be a multilingual household. So thank you very much, Christina. I really appreciate this. You're our first guest on the podcast. We have a couple episodes before you that I did earlier in the year where we don't have any guests. And so you being our first guest, we really appreciate it. And maybe we'll have you back on down the road and tell us a little bit about maybe how you guys caught up because in this episode we talked about how our students are behind after lockdown and so we'll have you back on sometime if you don't mind and I'm sure all our listeners will be looking forward to that thank you very much yeah thank you so much and now it is time for the tweet of the week this is from teacher twitter 
in our whole universe of education tweets out there. This tweet is from a at Dr. Brad Johnson, and the tweet reads this, Why teachers need to fully enjoy their holidays. Few people know tired like teachers. In fact, research found that teachers make more minute-by-minute decisions than brain surgeons, and that's extremely tiring. Then add in classrooms full of students and all the adaptations this year. And I have never read the research about how many decisions teachers make minute by minute, but I can attest to the fact that it is extremely tiring. When I was in the classroom, I'd come back home on Fridays and want to do nothing but sleep. Oh my word. No one could figure. It's like, you're not working out in the sun. You're not using your muscle. You're not exerting a lot of energy. And I would tell people all the time, You have no idea how tiring it is. And you do. You make decisions minute by minute. Am I going to engage this student or am I going to do planned ignorance? Am I going to try to run to the copy machine real quick or am I going to just tell them to draw it in their journal? Am I going to try to get this study guide done in one day and have the test two days from now? Or um, are we going to break this up into two days because this went way slower or way faster than I thought? It is very mentally tiring. And as Brad Johnson said, on top of that, you have students and teachers and pair pros and the bookkeeper and the principal and the custodian all asking you questions all day long, meetings, phone calls, emails, parents. And so as Brad Johnson said, take advantage of these holidays relax, do whatever you need to do to find yourself again. Because when January hits, we got to do it again, folks. We got to do it all over again. So my tweet of the week that Teaches Teacher sent out is about the very sad case that actually happened right here in Georgia of Ahmaud Aubrey. My tweet this week on that case rends my heart because Ahmaud Aubrey was our students, right? We have all taught in Ahmaud Arbery. And so just knowing that my black students can be on the street, go jogging and be cornered and ran down with a truck and shot unarmed, not while committing a crime. It's just heartbreaking. I am a black male myself, obviously, and I have apprehensions now about going jogging myself. And so you add on top of that the fact that I have dozens of dozens of former students that could be in a Mart Arbery. And I think that's the way we have to look at it, is that this is not just an isolated event that happened in Brunswick, Georgia, a few hours actually from where I sit today, but it could happen on any street anywhere and it shouldn't. That's the key. It shouldn't. And so I've been hearing a lot of commentary about uh, this isn't justice. Because the just thing is for Martin Arbery to be home enjoying his family, just like we all are through this holiday week. So it's not justice, but it's a step in the right direction. And we just hope that our young men of color, our students, that they are, they have a just experience or as just of an experience as they can here in America, but it starts in our classroom. And so that's my tweet from our account is that Ahmaud Arbery could have been one of ours. He had a teacher like you or myself, and hopefully in his classroom, in his school, 
he felt love and he felt respect and he did feel justice. Schools should be the place that our students feel that. Thanks, everybody. Look, this is the end of our podcast. I'm so thankful to Christina for being our first guest. And I also want to give a shout out to Janelle Wold at Janelle Wold Virtual Solutions for producing this podcast. Go check it out. She is just great behind the scenes and helping me sound semi-professional, which is basically a miracle. (laughs) Thanks, Janelle. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Adios. Adios.